Well, we're talking through the book of 1 Timothy, and let me just remind you, if you haven't been here with us, that this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus. Later, you see the letter of Ephesians written to them, but uh, we see that he's writing this passage or this, this letter to Timothy, his, his kind of young brother in the faith. And so he's trying to give him some uh, instructions on how to order the church, how to kind of put a blueprint of a New Testament church together, what to do, what to not do. And today, he's going to be talking about leadership in the living expression. And so one of the key parts of a New Testament church is setting up leadership. And so Paul's very specific in this passage about what God expects from leaders, He discusses the two formal offices in the New Testament church, which is pastor elders and deacons. Now, he doesn't preclude any other leaders or positions. He doesn't say, well, these are the only two positions that can ever exist. Uh, But every New Testament church should have these two positions, pastor elder and deacon, for the church to kind of run well and to be a blueprint of what a New Testament church should be. And so let's take a look at what he expects out of these folks today, and we're just going to read through chapter 3, the entire chapter, and then we'll come back and we'll pick it apart kind of piece by piece. Here's what it says. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care uh, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders." so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the, thank you, nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So we see here this passage, he talks about the two positions, and then he talks a little bit about how they should function in the church. What is the church? What's it for? Why is it here? And so let's talk about, uh, first of all, the qualifications for pastors as we see in the first seven verses. Let me read just those first seven verses again for you. And we're going to take each one of those phrases, each one of those uh, qualities, those characteristics, and kind of explain what they mean. Here's what it says. 
The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." So first of all, I want us to see that there's always a plurality of elders. Everywhere it talks about elders in the New Testament, it talks about them uh, as more than one. No church should have a single pastor, and I know you're thinking maybe to yourself, well, what about some small church of 40 people in a rural area? Perhaps they may because they simply don't have any other pastors. But as much as it's possible, uh, churches should always have more than one pastor. Fellowship of Grace, since its inception uh, 12 years ago, has had at least three pastors at any time. The reason for this is that pastors are uh, accountable to one another. They must look after one another. They must hold each other, other's feet kind of to the fire. And so we see that there's always a plurality of pastors. Now there's also some confusion about uh, how there might be three or four or five different offices in the New Testament. But this word elder pastor, this word shepherd, and this word overseer all are actually uh, describing the same one office. We see that very clearly from a passage in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. It says, So I exhort the elders, there it is, elders, among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, that's the word overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And so we see that all of these uh, uh, descriptions are, are really that of this one office. Sometimes pastors uh, are, are kind of elder, statesman type of guys. Sometimes they're shepherds, they're, they're shepherding and caring for the flock. Sometimes they're overseers, uh, where they're overseeing the ministry and their leaders, uh, organizing it. In fact, elder responsibilities are to govern lead, to preach, teach the word of God, to pastor shepherd, to guard the truth, and then to select other elders. That is what the position of elder does. But what Paul's specifically speaking about here is not what do they do, how do they function, but who qualifies? Who qualifies? Who's, who's capable of serving in these positions? Well, the first thing he talks about is aspiring to the office. Now, you might think, oh, that's anybody who wants to be the leader. Anybody who wants to be the leader should be a pastor. No, that's what, not what it means at all. When he says aspires to the office, it means you have, must have a deep desire to pursue service. It's not about seeking authority or power. It's about pursuing ministry and service to the body of Christ that one loves because it's just in your gut. You can't turn it off. I remember when Fellowship of Grace was uh, still on the drawing board it hadn't been born yet, and we were talking about what this church would look like. And as we talked about it, it, it was something that was welling up inside of me. It was something that I knew if I, if I wasn't a part of planting this new church and starting this new church, it would literally kill me. I just felt like there was something in me that I had to do this. I must do this. It wasn't something I had a choice to do. It was something God put into me. He called me to do it. 
And so I responded. Uh, By the way, we don't ever want to see this position as someone who's on top, but it's really upside down. It's someone who's the greatest servant. The pastors in, in Fellowship of Grace, Pastor Derek, Pastor John, and myself, we should be the three biggest servants of the body. We should be the three who give to it more than anyone. We should be the three uh, that give more time, energy, effort, heart, soul, prayer, everything. We are the ones that should be giving to it, not getting from it the most. That's a key part of understanding what this means. It says then that they are above reproach. Now that's a little scary because the the actual meaning of that word is, is blameless. They have to be blameless. Now that doesn't mean perfect but it means that there's no legitimate kind of overarching character concerns. You don't think to yourself, you know that Michael Porter, he's just a worldly guy, man. He just loves material things. He's all about the material stuff. Oh, that Pastor Derek, he's just a greedy guy. He, he just wants, you know, oh, that Pastor John, he just, he just is critical of everything and everybody. You should never think that way about your pastors. We should never act in a way, and I'm not being perfect, we should never act in a way that you would use some terrible characteristic to describe who we are. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to be above reproach as a pastor? Here's why. Because the moment you agree, the moment you say yes to God, I will be a pastor. I will be one who, who, who shepherds your flock, God. By the way, this isn't our church. It's his church. You get a larger target from Satan on your back. I mean, he wants to, he wants to get us more than he wants to get you. We are on the top 10 list. You are not. Here's why. Because a moral failure on one of our parts would hurt the body way more than other people. It would, it would devastate many lives rather than just a few. We should have a greater understanding of the truth. We study it. We, we spend time reading it and studying it and praying about it that you, that you can't do because you have jobs that, that don't pay you to do that. You know, And so uh, we should have a better understanding of the truth, which gives us a greater responsibility. I tell my grandsons, we're a little bit like Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. With great understanding of God's word, with greater understanding comes greater responsibility to live it out. It says also that pastors should be the husband of one wife. Now, this has been misunderstood and misinterpreted uh, through the centuries in a lot of different ways. Some have said before in the past uh, that this means you must be married And the problem with that understanding is Paul wasn't married, Timothy wasn't married, and Jesus wasn't married. So that would disqualify those three guys, and I don't think that's a a very good interpretation or understanding of what that means. What the phrase actually means is it's a one-woman man. Some have said that it means never been divorced and remarried. That's not what it means. If if this one were retroactive uh, to a man's whole entire life, then so would all the others be, and no one would ever qualify. What it means is at this moment, in this time, this guy is a one-woman man. It means he's faithful to one woman. We're not flirtatious. We're not adulterers. We don't have pornography issues. We should be faithful in our hearts and in our behavior. It says next that we should be sober-minded. Does that mean that we shouldn't be drunks? Yeah, of course it means that. But it means more than that. It means we should be clear-headed. It means that we should be alert and watchful about ourselves and about the body of Christ, too. We're serious. We take that seriously. We're sober-minded. It says we should be self-controlled. What that means in the original um, uh, language, in the original Koine Greek, what that means is self-controlled. It means you're, you're in control of oneself, okay? So you don't have to be a great Bible scholar. It means you should be in control of oneself. You shouldn't be reactionary. We are the last men that should ever have problems with a fit of anger. 
we should also have a seriousness about our work and ministry, taking it very seriously. That doesn't mean we can't have a sense of humor and we can't joke around at the times when it's, it's right to do that. But it means when it's time to talk about God's word and, and, and God's ministry and God's principles, that we take it seriously and we have a level of self-control. It says that we should be respectable. That means we should be orderly. It's the, actually the opposite of chaotic or chaos. We should have a disciplined mind, a disciplined life, and a disciplined schedule to fulfill the work of the ministry. We should be living the kind of life that demands respect from others, whether they agree with us or not. We should be hospitable. That literally means the lover of strangers. We should love everyone, the people that we know, that we're really tight with, and the people we don't know. We should be loving all people. We should be loving every person that comes through that door, whether they think like us or don't think like us. We should still love them. By the way, this is not only practice and practicing personal hospitality, but it's really leading the church to be hospitable to strangers. One of the things that I get told a lot is that our church is very friendly. That's good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That's a reflection on you, and it's a reflection of us. We should be able to teach. Now, this is a very interesting phrase because it's the only non-character quality that's listed here. We don't have to have all these great skills and all these wonderful abilities, and we don't have to be all these talented people. We don't all have to be drummers. We don't have to be guitar players. We don't have to do all this stuff, but we do have to be able to teach. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have the spiritual gift of teaching, but we must be students and practitioners of God's word. For instance, I think Pastor Derek has the uh, spiritual gift of teaching. Uh, when he gets up and preaches, I always walk away learning something. I, I gain new insight. I gain new understanding. I, 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 I learn something new. I'm really not a, a gifted uh, teacher, I don't think. I, I have the spiritual gift of, of exhortation or encouragement, which means I'm a cheerleader for God's word. I, I want to come and, uh, yeah, you might learn some things from hearing, but I, what I want more is I want you to go out and do it. I want you to be excited about what you hear and say, man, I'm going to go and do that in my life. That's the gift that I have and how God wired me. But it doesn't relieve me, even though I don't have that spiritual gift, if I'm able to teach, well, that means that I should be loving God's word. I should be studying God's word, knowing it, teaching it, and knowing clearly how to apply it to people's lives. The majority of time that I spend counseling people is not talking about a bunch of psychological mumbo-jumbo. It's about saying, hey, here's what God says. Here's how that works in your life. And if you would do that, here's the results you would have instead. It's about applying God's word. And that's what it means being able to teach. Then it says not drunkards. That doesn't mean that we just have to avoid drunkenness. But it basically means that we have to keep from being a stumbling block to the body. Like if I would have worn a Mahomes jersey today and you were a Cincinnati fan, that might be a stumbling block for you, okay? Uh, what, what it really means is that there's a leadership pyramid that, that exists. We talk about this in leadership stuff all the time. And what that means is there's this pyramid that exists, and the higher up you go, the, the, the less freedom you have. See, at the bottom, when you're just in a tender at Fellowship of Grace, you really can do practically anything. I mean, you can do anything in your life. You, you have the freedom to just be who you want to be and do just whatever you want to do. When you say, I want to become a member, you move up a little bit and your freedom gets less. You, you can't post a bunch of uh, pictures on Facebook of you uh, selling drugs on the corner 
You you can't, there's just certain things as a member you don't have the freedom anymore to do. And as that goes up, as you take our responsibility in the church and all that, and then you get to the top, what it means is for pastors, we have the least amount of freedom. We have the greatest amount of responsibility and the least amount of freedom. What that means is I can't just not get drunk, but I don't drink at all because it might cause somebody to stumble. doesn't mean I don't have the freedom in Christ to, to just have a drink if I want to. But what it means is I want to be careful about my testimony, be careful about what I do, because I don't want it to be a stumbling block to anyone. It means not violent. He says not violent. What that actually means is, is not the giver of punches. Not the giver of punches. Pastors can't be brawlers. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be getting in big fights. Uh, uh, you know, I, I've been in one fight since I was in high school, and that was because I was a security guard and I was getting punched, you know. But we should not be the kind of guys that have to struggle with physical violence to, to, to get our way and to do things, to make people want to do what we want them to do. Uh, that's not who we should be. It says we should be gentle. That means in response to criticism and wrong committed against us, we should be gentle in reaction. Wow, that's not always easy. Uh, as a pastor, we get a lot of criticism sometimes. Uh, there are a lot of opinions out there. And, and sometimes wrong gets committed against us. I will tell you that Fellowship of Grace, out of all the churches I've ever been in, and I've been in several in my life, church is probably the least critical toward their pastors of any church I've ever seen. I just want to tell you what a joy it is to serve you and to be loved by you. Um, It just really is a joy. We have to do very little forgiving. We have to forbear uh, the burdens uh, of of the body very little because our body is so good here. And I hear other pastors talking about how uh, they go to a business meeting and, and uh, you know, they're just torn up about it and people just rip them up one side and down the other. And I just think to myself, wow, God, thank you for Fellowship of Grace. Thank you for Fellowship of Grace. We don't even have that even close to anything like that ever happen. But it means that if it does happen, we should respond with forgiveness and never hold grudges. It says not quarrelsome. Well, that means not arguers. We should be able to disagree without being disagreeable. Now, that's not very common in our society, especially with Facebook. But we should be able to disagree with people and say, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't see it that way. I disagree with you. And yet still love them, still accept them, still want to be their friend even though we disagree. It says we shouldn't be the lover of money. It means don't pursue ministry out of a paycheck or financial gain. By the way... uh, (laughs) If you ever choose or if you're looking for a new career and you're thinking about being a a pastor as a new career, that's just the worst idea in the whole world, okay? You should never choose to be a pastor out of seeking a career move. If God's not calling you to do it, if it's not something in your gut that you would do for free, and by the way, your pastors have done for free in the past, if you wouldn't do it for free, you shouldn't do it. And so don't seek it as a paycheck or a financial gain. But it also means we shouldn't be materialistic. Our minds should be on spiritual things, not on worldly things. doesn't mean we can't have nice things. doesn't mean we can't work hard and get a, a, a good paycheck. And I think Fellowship of Grace is very kind to their pastors. But it means we shouldn't be, have our minds set on that. Then it says we must manage our own household well with all dignity, keeping our children submissive. You see, the home is the testing ground for managing the church. You want to know how well we would do as pastors? You come and spend a day with us in our home. 
Watch how our kids interact with us. Watch how our wife interacts with us. Watch how it gets run, how the thing gets, and that's how we'll run the church. I mean, it's just a, it's just a one-for-one ratio there. Now, I will tell you, I do want to say this, uh, that uh, caring, for one's spiritual, or caring for one's family is a sign of spiritual maturity. The more, the more a man takes care of his family, the more spiritually mature he is. And by the way, when it says to have our children under submission, that, that is clearly talking about children in our home. Listen, once they get grown up and they get out of the house, it's not my problem anymore, okay? You can't hold us accountable for what our adult children go and do. Uh, just want to put that as a side note there. All right? <clears throat> says they can't be a recent convert. Why is that? Because they have to be spiritually mature. And the word elder itself actually means old man. Now, I would prefer you continue to call us a Pastor Michael, Pastor Derek, Pastor John. I really don't prefer old man Michael, old man Derek, and old man John, and I know they wouldn't prefer that either. But that really is what it means. It means that you are old enough to have lived life. You've dealt with some failures. You've had some life struggles. And we have. But there's an element of maturity that comes out of that, folks. There's an element of, of humility that comes from going through difficult things in life where you just say, God, I can't, I can't do this without you. I need your help. It says we should be well thought of by outsiders. We have to have a good reputation with those outside the church, not just those inside the church. Our neighbors should be kindly, speak kindly about us. The people that we work with when we had secular jobs should think highly of us. People that we interact with in the community should think highly of us and speak highly of us. Because if not, we'll bring shame to the church because of... Now, that's a a long and tall list there. It's a lot to think about. But as we think about these characteristics that we should see in every pastor, in every elder, it should challenge us, each one of us, to pursue these in our own lives and feel a compulsion, a compulsion to pray for your elders that we might live up to this calling. Now, we spend time praying for you. I don't know if you know this or not, but, but quite often, we try to do it every week. Some, some weeks we don't make it, but, but, but many weeks, we come into this room, just the three of us, or Christopher will join us sometimes, the four of us, and we'll just pray through the entire list of people that attend Fellowship of Grace. One by one, we will pray for you by name. And, and I would covet your prayers for us. You only have three to pray for. Okay? We got a bunch. We would really covet you praying for us that God would help us be good men who live up to these qualifications and these characteristics. Then we see there are qualifications also for deacons. And I know you're thinking already, holy moly, it's 1121 and he's on point number two and I'm already smelling the food. I'll get there, I promise qualification for deacons. We're going to look at uh, verses 8 through 10. We're going to skip verse 11 and come back to that and then look at verses 12 and 13 that deal with deacons. Here's what it says. Let me remind you. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is a different position totally uh, than elders. Uh, sometimes uh, people get a little confused and they're like, well, that guy's been a deacon a long time. When is he going to get promoted to elder? Well, it's not, a, it's not a promotion. They're just two totally different things, okay? Uh, where the pastors are, 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 are pastor leaders, shepherds of the body, uh, deacons are servants. The real responsibility of deacons is to free the elders to focus on ministry. If we look back in the book of Acts at the very first time that the body uh, chose deacons, it was because some, widow, uh, or some, some women were not getting fed. And it, they brought it to the attention of the apostles. And the apostles said something very strange. They said, hey, we can't take time to do this. What? See that women are fed, that, that widows are fed? You can't. But what they said was, we have to stay focused on the ministry of the word and prayer. But this is important enough, we're going to see that it gets done. In other words, we can't just always give ourselves to the physical needs of the body because we have to focus on the spiritual needs of the body. We can't, we can't let that go by the wayside. But it's important that the physical needs get met. And so we're going to ask you to bring some guys uh, into this deacon position to free the elders to stay focused on ministry. They serve the body of Christ, and then they protect the unity of the body as well through serving it. We see in that passage in the book of Acts that after uh, these deacons were chosen, these seven men of good reputation and full of the Holy Spirit, that we never hear about this problem again. It never comes up. There's never a split in the church. And so we can assume that these seven men took really good care of it and solved the problem. That's what deacons do. Here's some of the words that he uses for them. It says that they're dignified. That means they're worthy of respect in their faith. Others should stand in awe of their worship and their service to the body. And I don't mean like, wow, man, that guy sings really great. He's awesome. Okay, but, but, but say, look, at the, look how committed that guy is. Look how much that guy gives to the body. Look how much he serves it. That's what it means to be dignified, not double-tongued. That means to be sincere and not two-faced, not to be a, a, a gossip uh, deacons, because they deal with pr uh, private uh, and sometimes very personal needs of the body, physical needs of the body, they sometimes know a lot of private information about people. And they've got to be careful not to share that. Uh, they can't be fake or phony. They've got to be real, not double-tongued. And, and what that means is they listen to people and they really care about them. It says not addicted to much wine. That means that they should have moderation when drinking alcohol. But it's really the, the act of not being taken over or influenced by any other substance than Jesus Christ. So it's not greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, back in early, the early church, uh, sometimes deacons handled the money in many of the churches. And so uh, they had the opportunity uh, to sometimes, if they were greedy, uh, to just take a little out of the plate for themselves. Uh, and that should never happen, of course. Uh, deacons should be models, models of giving and have a lack of materialism in their lives. So they should, they should hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, the mystery of faith is talked about uh, many different times by Paul, and, and it's a little bit different each time, but it's really the prophecies and how the gospel, the story about Jesus Christ, fulfills all of that in saving those who are far from God and how he establishes the church. 
And when he says to hold the mystery of the faith, to hold on to the gospel with a clear conscience, he, they mean, it means to live it out, to hang on to it, to not sway, as he talked about in one of the previous chapters, from the gospel, but to hold on to it because it'll make you strong. It'll make you faithful. While deacons are not required to be able to teach, they must be able to accurately practice the word of God in their lives and in their home and in their church. It says that they should be tested to prove themselves blameless. Again, again, that doesn't mean perfect. But they should be serving the church faithfully before ever being chosen to serve officially. Now, every time we add deacons or choose new deacons, uh, we'll talk about it before we vote on them. And one of the things that I'll say to you is don't, don't vote for somebody who has potential. Don't vote for somebody that you think has the potential to be a good deacon. Look around the church and see who's already deking. <laughs> Vote for them. Because really it's the act of giving somebody the official title and position of somebody they're already being. That's what it means to be tested and prove yourself blameless. It's the, he has to be the husband of one wife, which is the same as the elders, by the way. Uh, the, this phrase, husband of one wife, also uh, precludes women from serving in these two positions. Now, I don't have time to go into it. I talked about it a great deal last week. But, but please understand that there is a difference between value and roles. Men and women have absolute equal value to God. They have equal uh, access to God. They have, are of equal importance to God. Uh, there, is, there is nothing different about how we relate to God. The only difference is the role that we fulfill in the home and in the church, and men, God has called us to be leaders in both our home and in our church. In fact, right here it says, if you can't lead your home, you shouldn't be leading the church. He says again, managing their children and households well. It's the same as the elders. Uh, they should be managing their marriage relationship and their children's relationships well. There should be a, a sense of family uh, from top to bottom in their family. And, of course, again, children implies those living at home. It's really the act of, uh, and I'll tell you, um, just as a very practical thing, when I, and we're not like always looking and evaluating people to, people to be deacons, but when I see a man in church whose kids are acting out as all of our kids do at times, and he says, kids, stop it right now, and he says it once, and they stop it, I go, ooh, there's a guy I'm thinking about. There's a guy who's managing his home well. He's not counting. He's not yelling. He's not freaking out. And his kids aren't ignoring him. Take note. And then it says, deacons who serve well gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith. Their experiencing serving the body well offers them a good reputation, a good reputation, and, and a greater faith that can't be shaken. They get the opportunity to serve the body and, and, and do things in the body of Christ that, that just builds their faith. They see God at work more and more and more and more and more. And it builds their faith and, and makes them really unshakable. So those are some pretty tall orders of pastors and deacons, some pretty tall qualifications for them. But before we go from the qualifications, I do want us to look at the qualification for deacon wives. Back in 1 Timothy 3.11, Right in the middle of all that talk about deacons, there's a verse that talks about their wives, and here's what it says. 
Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, you first might ask the question, uh, well, why is there a qualification for a deacon wife but not for a pastor's wives? Don't pastor's wives have to be certain? Well, no, they don't, and here's why. Because to do my ministry uh, calling, to serve this body as a pastor, I don't uh, get with Julie and say, hey, uh, let me run my sermon through you, see if you're okay with everything, do I need to change anything? I don't run that through her, okay? We don't, we don't do this job as an elder together. Now, she's a support for me, uh, she's a good wife to me, she's all those things, but, but we're not co-pastors. It's very hard for her to be a pastor and be the husband of one wife. Probably not as hard as it used to be, but it still should be really hard, okay? Deacons are a little bit different because of the nature of their ministry, uh, helping people, serving people. And by the way, you know some of the people they serve the greatest are widows, and their wives come right along with them and serve alongside them and minister to these people with them. And so uh, many times, deacon wives are way more into uh, the weeds of, of helping their husband, their pastor husbands in their ministry. That's why there's a qualification. By the way, does this, uh, in, the, in the NIV, I will tell you this, in the NIV, let me go back to this just for a minute, it doesn't say their wives, it says uh, women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Very poor translation of that. And it led to a lot of discussion about women being deaconesses. Now, again, it's very hard for a woman to be a deacon if she can't be the husband of one wife. Okay? Also, it wouldn't make any sense at all uh, if you were going to have three positions, a pastor, elder, a deacon, and a deaconess. You'd talk about uh, all the qualifications for the pastor, all the qualifications for the deacon, and then all the qualifications for the deaconess. The deacon and the deaconess shouldn't have different qualifications, but they do in this position. All of those are reasons why uh, that's a poor um, uh, translation of this word, and there are no women deaconesses in the New Testament. The only other exception that the NIV uh, really supported was uh, calling a woman named Phoebe as a deacon, but that Greek word diakonos uh, is translated servant in about 30 other places in the New Testament, and in this one place uh, where it describes Phoebe, they chose to use a word deaconess instead of servant. Now, she was a great woman of God, and she was a great servant to the body, but she didn't serve in a position of deaconess. Now, let's talk about the things that it says here. It says they have to be dignified. Like deacons, they have to be worthy of respect in the faith, not slanderers. That means not malicious talkers. They don't talk about stuff they know. They're not gossips. These women are going to find out stuff about people. If, if, if there's a, a family in our church that's having a terrible struggle with their finances, something's happened, and maybe they've made some bad choices, and, and the church decides that we're going to help them in some way, and, and this deacon goes to find out what we can do for them, what they need, and the woman, his wife, goes with him, and they, they hear what's going on. She can't be a gossip. They, they sometimes get a lot of inside dirt on people, and it has to be kept quiet and privileged. They have to be sober-minded, which means clear-headed, alert, watchful, as we talked about, and not drawn to excesses, but temperate. Then this, or this uh, phrase, faithful in all things, it means they just need to be trustworthy in everything they do. They can be trusted to do what they say they're going to do because they do it. Let, they just let their yes be yes and their no be no. These qualifications, likewise, should challenge all of us to be deacon 
and deacon wife worthy. I mean, we should all strive to live uh, like this, whether we uh, ever want to be in a position of deacon or not. We should be this way so that when the church needs deacons, there's just people all around that qualify. I want us to pray for our deacons that they may minister to the body and many others and will qualify themselves by just growing in Christ, by just learning to follow Jesus better. The last thing I want you to see in this passage is that the local church is the expression of Jesus Christ in the world. Look at verses 14 through 16. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to believe in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Of course, those last parts talking about Jesus. Here Paul gives three metaphors for the church and how it should operate and how these leaders should operate in uh, this, this church thing. Okay? The first one he talks about being the household of God. Listen, we are a household. Uh, just like your family is a household, this church is a household. We're, we're kind of a family of families, and we should treat one another like family. We should function as a healthy, functional family does, not like sometimes how some of our actual homes do, okay? We should be loving and caring for one another. We should be showing preference to one another. We should be looking out for one another. Listen, we are family because those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ have been born into God's family. We have the same father and it makes us brothers and sisters. We should take care of one another as brothers and sisters in the family. The second metaphor he uses is he calls us the church of the living God. What does it mean? It means, it means we're called out. Uh, we're called out by the living God and assembled together by him. We're called together for a purpose. We experience God in corporate ways, uh, like worship, praying, giving, caring. Now listen, I can drive down the, uh, you know, the street, the highway, and listen to some of these songs that we play here, and I can just sing away and just really enjoy them. I can do all of that totally privately. But there's something different. There's just something different when people who have the same father come together, we're called together, we come to this church where God has placed us. By the way, I think that's also saying that God's placed you, if you're a member of this church, God's placed you here as a part of this collection. And when we come and sing together, it's just different. It can't all be explained, but it's just totally different. When I pray alone, that's one thing, but when we get together and we pray together, it's just different. The church is not just another organization like the YMCA or the PTA or any other letters. It's a God-called group with God-given purpose and mission and meaning. The third metaphor he uses, he calls us a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, i got to be honest with you. I didn't remember what a buttress was, so I had to look it up. And it means that we're, the church is holding up the truth of the gospel to the world. Uh, I think we all know what pillars are. Uh, they're those you know, round things or square things that, that kind of hold stuff up. You know, they're pillars. They, they hold up a roof or a ceiling. Buttress, if you can remember in your mind any pictures of like castles or anything, when there's a drawbridge or a door, 
Uh, on both sides of the door, it kind of comes out a little bit, uh, a little piece comes out on both sides to hold up the wall because when that door gets pressure on it being open and closed and open and closed and open and closed a thousand times, that wall can become weak there. So there's a buttress that runs uh, perpendicular to the wall to keep it solid. He's saying the church is the pillar that upholds the ceiling, the roof, and it's a buttress that holds up the walls. Now, when you look at Paul's other uh, analogies about this metaphorical temple that God is building to himself, he says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the prophets from the Old Testament, the apostles from the New Testament. It's the Word of God. It's, it's built on the foundation of the Word of God with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. That cornerstone is the first piece that's put on a corner that has to be at a perfect right angle. Because if it's just a little bit off, if it's a degree off, once you build these walls, you're never going to come together when you get to the other side. It's just off a little bit. And so it has to be a perfect cornerstone. Jesus is the perfect cornerstone. So what he's saying here, folks, is this. Historically, building this temple, this metaphorical temple to God, the foundation is God's word. Jesus is the corner, and then these walls are built up, and the church, the New Testament church, are the pillars that hold up the ceiling, and they're the the buttress that hold up the walls and give it strength. What he's really saying here is, in essence, the church is the living expression of Jesus Christ in the world today. Jesus is no longer here in the flesh. His spirit's here, but his flesh is not. But we are. We are to reflect him and stand in for him as his presence until he comes back again. We are his hands and his feet to the world, folks. We are his voice to the world. We're not the savior of it. We're not taking his place. But in all of the the physical ways, the New Testament church is Jesus to the world. There's no salvation in the church. Salvation comes in the gospel. It's the truth about Jesus, the fact that we are sinners and that we couldn't do anything about our sin, that God sent his son Jesus to die for us so that by putting our faith and trust in him and what he did on the cross alone, we can have eternal life. We can have our sins forgiven. We can be a new creation. The Holy Spirit can come into us. But then, folks, we are the ones who represent him in the world. We are his ambassadors. There's a hundred different ways that the Bible says it. We have to take that seriously. Listen, God has given us some clear instruction about leaders in the church and how they should be, what what they should characteristically be like. Let's pray for them, please, and, and let's support them. Let's be challenged. Let's all be challenged by how God says we should live as a mature believer And we need to be the living expression of Jesus in the world because the folks out there need to see him pretty badly, folks. They need to see him pretty badly. There are so many people out these doors that are without hope, that are looking for something, someone to help them find something that is greater than themselves. We have found it. We must reflect it. We must share it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word We pray that you would forgive uh, us as leaders when we have failed you, when we have not perfectly lived up to your characteristics, your standards. But Father, we know that it's then that you uh, come and forgive us. 
you give us your mercy and your grace. God, we thank you for that. Help us to grow and mature and live up to these qualifications that the world might see who you are through us. Father, as always, I pray that people wouldn't come to Fellowship of Grace and say, man, what incredible music they have or what a great pastor they have or what great speaker he is or, or how beautiful the building is or wow, isn't this new building cool? God, we want them to come here and walk away saying, wow, those people have a great God. Wow, those people really act like Jesus toward me. Father, help us to be like that. Help us to be like that and represent you well in the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.